And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. What's up, hustlers? Welcome back. This is Andrew Morgans, founder of Marknology. Here is today's host of Startup Hustle. We're going to be talking about preparing to sell your e-commerce brand. But before I introduce today's guest, Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by Equip Bids Auction, your Midwest online auction marketplace to buy and sell stuff. Equip Bid provides dedicated support to affiliates in Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and Iowa. Join the team and sell everything from heavy machinery to home goods, vehicles and boats to restaurant and kitchen equipment and tractors to patio furniture. You got it all. Go to equip-bid.me backslash startup. That's equip-bid.me backslash startup for details, or just click the link saved down in the show notes. Today's guest, Thomas Mail from FE International. Welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew. Thanks so much for inviting me on. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. Um, this topic is something that is very relevant to my audience, very, re- very relevant to my personal journey right now. Um, you know, Marknology is a full-service agency. Um, but as a as an entrepreneur, as an investor myself, I'm trying to acquire and build build brands um, for my own team. Uh, us as a Marknology team are building the brands, not just Andrew. So, what does that look like? How do we get our brands ready? You know, we get hired to help brands get ready to sell their e-commerce business or their Amazon business. Um, maybe that's getting their website ready or or built up past what it is. Maybe it's getting their Amazon built up. There's all different things you can do to really get a, an e-commerce business ready. Um, but before we jump into that, as always, I love to get to know you and, you know, what has gotten you to the point where you're an expert on, to be on the show, to talk about this, to talk about the company you've built. Um, we all have our story and I would love to know yours. Like, where does your entrepreneurial story get started? You know, did you always want to be a business owner? Did you always want to be in finance and M&A? Um, tell me about your early days. Yeah. So, um, started FE International in 2010. Um, I was at, I graduated university or college in, in 2010. At the time, for those of you who remember, that was a bit of a recession or coming out the back of a recession. So getting a job was actually quite difficult. I was, so I did a business degree and almost everyone in my peer group went on to work for an investment bank. They went to work for a, a big consulting firm, an accounting firm, l- large companies. Um, I, I did not, so I didn't really want to run a business as such, but I also didn't really want to get a job. Um, yeah. I fell into starting a business by accident. I would definitely don't have that, oh, I was an entrepreneur since I was five-year-old selling cookies and lemonade and stuff like that. I don't really have that background. Um, I'm obviously technical because I'm an investment bank, essentially, um, but I wouldn't say I'm an extremely technical finance person. I don't have an MBA in corporate finance or anything like that. Much of my team do. I have a very, I guess, unfortunate. I've built a team of people who are much smarter and more qualified than me at this stage. But starting out 2010, um, you were actually just talking about your sponsor, which has absolutely no link to me whatsoever. But back then, I was essentially buying and selling anything I could to make 
money online. Um, yeah. Going into 2010, I was mostly selling things online. So things like domain names, which back then you had to sell them on eBay. That was really the only option. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I discovered, I never really understood domains because to me, a domain didn't really have any value. It was, yep. it was very subjective. So it's like, what is this domain worth? To most people, it's worth nothing. Someone that's worth $100. Never made sense. Then I discovered websites or online businesses. And that, with a bit of a business background, made sense to me. It's like, well, if this this is making $10 a month, it has value to someone because that cash flow is worth something. So I started with tiny, tiny websites making literally $10 a month, $50 a month, $100 a month. I would buy them for... Five hundred dollars, and then sell them for the end of the month at a thousand dollars. Did that during college. Where were you selling the websites? Like at that time, just because we started around the same time, so our path is going to be pretty similar. I can already tell. I was eBay game at the same time. Yeah, eBay and then forums. I think Digital Point back then. I don't know if it exists now, but Digital Point was the forum that everyone (laughs) would buy and sell websites. Oh, back then, yeah, exactly. They had that section. Uh, there were a few other forums as well. I honestly don't remember all the all the names, but essentially I was, was finding Craigslist. Like, was Craigslist in the game or no back then? Not uh, really. For, not really for for web. Craigslist was around, but not really for selling um, websites or domains. Maybe there was, but it was never anything I figured out. Um, but it's definitely not as mature as it is today. If you want to sell your own website today, there's a hundred different marketplaces you can go to, and lots of different M and A firms, and then more mm-hmm. as you go. Um, I I graduated university in 2010 at the time i'd just been buying selling websites for myself and i realized if i was going to pay rent i don't come from a family of money if i was going to pay rent and be able to survive i couldn't just live off 500 dollars a month where i was living at the time in london um so i launched a a course or a book about how to buy and sell websites for profit basically teaching people how to do it that was 2010 i had no idea how to launch like a course or a book I'd say I got lucky or it did quite well. Lots of word of mouth. People liked the book. There was no real demand for it at the time. I didn't think there was any demand because no one was talking about buying and selling websites. But once I mm. once I launched the book, there was a bunch of bunch of demand. So that took off. Long story short, in 2010, that essentially paid enough for my rent for a year to open a small office, hire first couple of uh, team members and kind of create a bit of a financial backstop. Um, wow, that's incredible. And then what I realized is, or what, off the back of the book, I thought I was going to then make all of my money, like what you read now, like passive income on a beach type thing, just selling selling courses. That wasn't the reality. What actually happened is people who owned legitimate businesses, like yourself, for example, would come to me and be like, hey, Thomas, I read your book. Um, it's really helpful, but I actually don't want to sell my business myself. I want someone to do it for me. So back then, even though I had a business degree, I should say I knew, but like I didn't really know what M&A was or I didn't know what an investment bank was. I just thought, sure, I can help you. You sell it. So I fell into M&A or investment banking by accident, started selling businesses for people. Long story short, did that for two years, buying and selling a bit myself, selling for people, selling courses, a little bit of everything. In 2012... Uh, my current business business partner, Ismail, joined the business and we'd gone to college together, but he had gone and worked in investment banking. And I think he called me one day. I called him one day saying, hey, I just sold like a, a website for $10,000. Isn't that cool? 
And he called me saying, hey, I just worked on this IPO, which was like, I think at the time, the biggest in history, multi-billion dollar. And then we figured, why don't we like combine, work together, apply what he's learned on multi-billion dollar deals, what I've learned on $10,000 deals. And that's essentially what we've tried to do even today when I'm talking to my team. If you, we want to provide the level of experience to a business owner that if you call Goldman Sachs and you have a billion dollar business to sell, we want to provide exactly the same experience you get, but for a $10 million business or a $50 million business or a $1 million business. So 2012 onwards, he also looked at my numbers and he was like, Thomas, you make all of your money from selling businesses for people, but you only spend 10% of your time on it. So 2012 onward, FE International has just been M&A, 100% of our time and focus has been selling businesses for people. Um, in more recent years, we've ramped up a little bit of our own buying and selling, which we've always done mm-hmm. since day one. At the moment, we buy one or two businesses a year. I've always thought to your point at the start about what makes someone an expert, I've always thought you can't really be a true expert unless you've actually done it yourself. So Correct. a little bit of a trade-off between, I guess, competing with your clients and being the one who's also buying and selling, but also understanding how the process works. So yeah. our M&A business today, uh, we've closed over a billion dollars in deals by total valuation, uh, over 1,200 businesses in total. We sell about 100 businesses a year. And then the perspective is we're buying one or two. So a very small percentage of the overall. Um, our M&A business is around 50 people at the moment. Um, the total business with everything we do is over 150 uh, the majority of our M&A team are in either our New York office, Miami office, San Francisco, where I am, or or London. So we have four main offices, four main teams, um, but the majority are in New York at the moment. And then I think like many companies, we also have some remote people um, as well, particularly over the last um, few years. So that's where we are today. We started out super small, doing really small deals, applied industry knowledge. We knew a lot about online businesses, applied what we learned from doing billion dollar deals. And I think that resonated very well. There's a very big, and I say growing movement of bootstrapped or self-funded or even like small amount of funding business owners who realize that you can do very well for yourself financially if you build a business that makes $10 million a year without outside investors, and then you sell it for 20 million or whatever it might be. So that's very yep. much what we're like at the center of. Um, it's so interesting to me, you know, as someone that's been helping people sell their businesses, um, I have yet to go through an exit myself. Uh, I've just been kind of holding every business I've built uh, or acquired. I'm, I'm holding them all. Um, but I watch. I'm definitely like a watcher and I learn the most by just observing and, and being a part of things. I've felt like my first 10 years in e-com and Amazon has been in business has been my my second third and fourth degree so to speak you know um i similar to you i was actually touring playing music through college and i i didn't want to get a business degree uh because i was afraid that this was my business was my back or the degree was my backup plan to music and if i wanted to make sure my backup plan would for sure get me a job so i went into it just because everyone i knew in it was like getting jobs they were all getting place and and my friends getting business degrees would sometimes be like, I don't know, where do I go? Do I run a business? Am I a business owner? Do I go into finance? Like, you know, it was, it was more broad. And so 
I went into IT, even though now I'm in business, it's interesting. Uh, you know, and it was like, I, what I'm doing now has nothing to do with the uh, computer science or networking degree that I got. <laughs> not at all. You know, it maybe taught me how to reverse engineer some problems and taught me how to not be intimidated by, by technology and some things like that. But uh, definitely nothing to do with what I'm doing today. But, you know, what I do know is that for every person I know of that sold a business or been part of an exit, um, you know, it's it's a very high percentage. I would say, like, if I was going to guess, like 75 or 80 percent of those um, didn't have a great experience. Right. They didn't have a great experience or they feel like they left money on the table or that if they could do it again. They do it differently or, you know, something along those. That was a very stressful process. And that's something that I've just been able to observe. And, um, you know, for me, whenever I go through that process, it's always been like, I don't want to make the same mistakes or go down the same path that I've seen almost every, every other person go down. Um, and I think it's because you work so hard in the, in the business like this, and then you get to the end and it's this completely different arena than what you've been doing before. Uh, you know, the, from the negotiations, who are you selling to? Who's the buyer? Like, you know, what does due diligence look like? Do you get to continue to, um, stay on and work on the business for the next couple of years or do you just hand it right off and then they have to handle it you know we saw this in the aggregators some of them did it right some of them didn't where the business owner is no longer attached to it and and, and the person running it is not there and someone else has to pick it up um so i think you know i i started the amazon industry i was very early in the amazon industry there wasn't demand for it i promise you that there wasn't demand i was needing to do demand generation for Amazon services instead of just capturing the demand. And now both of us are in capturing demand type of businesses instead of generating them. But I can relate to, you know, being like, no one was really looking for this. No one was really doing this, um, that part. And then being where we are now, where there's lots of people doing what we're doing and you're saying, Hey, why would you choose us? Why would you work with us? Um, and like we mentioned before, we're the, we're the small Kansas city firm, you know, 40 of us or so, um, trying to work with the biggest the biggest brands in the world in some regard and trying to do that same thing where we're the small team working, you know, uh, with, the, with the big guys. So just relating a little bit of, around that, and I know that like some of our fields, at least in e-commerce, I know, I know M&A and acquisitions has existed for a very long time, but we're talking about e-commerce today, and that is relatively new, meaning you were there at the beginning of websites and now you're in the in the process of building them and selling them and preparing them for exit and advising in them. And all of that has happened in the span of, you know, 10, 12 years or so. Um, you know, let's talk about, we we're talking about e-commerce, content agencies, service-based agencies, websites, you know, um, I, I assume you guys are selling like, you know, D to C brands and Amazon brands as well. Is that part? Okay. Okay. So that assumption being true, that's, that's really where, you know, my world has exploded over the last two years since the pandemic, really. And Thrasio was the very first kind of coming out. Now they fired their CEO, laid all these people off, you know, just craziness really around the space. Um, what are you, are you seeing things slow down? Are you seeing things like, you know, for me, it was like, guys, don't listen to the noise. Steady as she goes. If you're the best, if you're doing great work, if you're, you know, running your business the right way, we're going to be just fine. You know, steady as she goes. Don't listen to the hype. Uh, that's one person's perspective from you on the M and A side. How have you seen things, you know, progress over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's been interesting to observe. Is in two in two thousand ten when I started the business. To your point, e commerce was obviously a thing. Amazon existed, all of that. But if anyone was building an e commerce business back then, they were using 
usually Volusion. I don't know if you remember Volusion. It was like an old e-commerce platform or Magento, which is still around today. Since Screw Squad, Magento. Like, Screw Magento. But, I'll speak to that. Basically, personally. no one uses it. Nowadays, it, basically everyone uses Shopify. Um, we do a lot of business in the Shopify space, like apps, themes, Shopify stores. If you're building a D2C brand today, you, you probably use Amazon to sell third party and you use Shopify to build your own store. 10 years 100%. ago, it wasn't really a thing. Um, about 10 years ago, we started actually selling Amazon FBA businesses before. Okay. That was cool. No one even knew it was really a thing. Um, people were building Amazon brands, but there was no big demand for selling them. You, you mentioned Thrasio. I actually met Carlos, who was the, one of the founders, came to our office, which was then in Boston. Um, I don't remember when, but before Thrasio even launched, and he told me about his idea, because at the time we were one of the market-leading firms. We still are today. Yeah. Um, so it's funny to think that we've kind of pre, like for many years, predated the aggregator world. And now also, we're still fine. We're still growing. But a lot of the aggregators have disappeared or imploded. Um, so to your point, the aggregator world is really helped us because it's generated a bunch of awareness around an industry yes. we were already operating in. The demand has always been there from buyers and sellers, but a lot yep. of sellers didn't really know you could sell because there wasn't a huge amount of press around it. And one of the challenges with M&A and marketing, so me as CEO of FE International, a lot of deals are private and the terms are never disclosed. So we mm. can't do, sometimes we can do a press release, but we can't usually do like a story, a case study, like a, a TV ad or anything like that showing like what you're doing we've done, which makes it, it challenging. What Thrasio did and what a lot of the aggregators did was they did a good job like storytelling, interviewing people. Marketing and selling what they're doing, right. Yeah. So I think a lot of sellers are like, wow, this is cool. I want to be I want to be one of those sellers. I want to like say that I sold my my business. So it built a lot of awareness to the industry. Ultimately my my view since day one when I said that I identified that websites had value because they made cash flow. They're still exactly the same with e-commerce brands today. I think what really happened is some of the aggregators came along and were overpaying versus what was rational from a valuation perspective. And all that's really done since then is valuations have just normalized. So if you look at like a chart of e-commerce multiples since 2010, they've probably gone, I'm not sure if you can see my pen, but you can kind of go like this and then like jumped up over the last couple of years. And now they're kind of like back to where they were before. To what people I needed people people needed somewhere to put their money during the pandemic when there wasn't a lot of places to put it and and you know a lot of those businesses were making they were profitable and, and new and exciting and people were overpaying to get in the game but i think a lot like when i think about the aggregators that's what i've been trying to do so i'm not a hater on the aggregator model like as a bootstrap guy i wanted to build brands and like acquire them and cash flow them and this is what i've been doing for 10 years for other people i saw the model i knew it would work and i saw thrasio do it and i got excited because they were actually an Amazon agency first, I believe. And then yeah, when he got, a, Carlos had like a PPC agency before he started it. Yeah. Like he, like he knew the game, you know, versus like some of the aggregators that just popped up to go buy the businesses. Like he at least knew, knew the Amazon industry. Um, and so for me, it was a validating thing. Oh my God. Okay. If this is big news and they think it's a great idea to the point of raising this much money, I must, my idea that I had to, to do this kind of as a bootstrap guy was a good idea because no one had done it. I was just kind of like flying by night, you know, with my own plans. So for me, it was as validating as anything else, but I would compare it to like when I'm looking at brands now to work with. Okay. So we have, you know, 50 or so brands that we work with. 
um, you know, across our teams, we, we do a lot. And uh, it's full service, so you can imagine we're, we're like that white glove boutique agency where we're doing a lot, a lot of proactive strategy, um, just hands in everything, influencer-based brands like Kevin Hart and Nikita Dragon and doing some fun stuff. Um, but for me as an agency owner, I learned early on that the projects that were the hardest for us were investor-based brands. So brands that were not really led by the founder or the person that built it or like, you know, a shop, a retail store trying to go online or a, or a bigger manufacturer or something like that. And if they were an investor brand, there were just so many more demands and such. Uh, Amazon's already a hard game in, in a lot of ways, a hard marketplace to get margin and things like that. And so you had these investors that were pushing versus brand building over time. If we had time, we'll always be successful. If we had to hit marks in a certain amount of time, you just can't control all of those things. And so, you know, if you run 300, 400 brands over the course of 10 years, you start to learn a little pattern to the ones that are successful and the ones that aren't. And just like knowing ahead of time that these investor-based brands were some of the hardest, especially if they weren't doing all the things they should be doing, like on the D2C side and all those kinds of things. And they're just like dumping their money to Amazon. And when seeing the, the aggregator model do that, coming with a lot of money and try to throw money behind the brands and push to hit these goals, I just... You know, it made me feel very like this is going to be a, a very hard thing to accomplish. Um, but I'm telling you, we're still launching brands every day on Amazon. We're still getting successful all of the time. It's still very much possible. Um, you know, so it, it's been interesting to just be like steady as she goes, keep doing quality work. And the best firms, the best operators, the best teams will continue to be here like when when everything shakes out. I mean, the thing you're saying about not being able to, like, like let's say, run press on some of your deals or your off-market deals or things like that. Um, I operate in the Airbnb and real estate world as well. I diversify, you know, from my agency into, into real estate and um, very much so. Like operating here in Kansas City, it's an up-and-coming city. You can get a lot of property pretty cheap. Um, a lot of the deals you never even see, you're never even like, you know, promoting or they don't get listed for sale. You're doing everything behind closed doors or like trying to get them off market and wholesale. So I can imagine, um, you know, you're not getting to tell those stories. You're not really wanting to, you're not able to get that appraisal that you wanted off the last one. And when I was in the early days of Amazon, I know I'm taking a second, but when I was in the early days of Amazon, it felt like I knew how much money these guys were making and how successful we were building brands and from you know 2011 to 2017 like the happy year so to speak and it was just like i had all this knowledge but like no one cared about it and you know no one was like selling the brands i think people were building them but like the news wasn't out like how well and how much money these brands were making so i poured myself into amazon uh because i was just like oh my god this is working this is working this is working this is working um, and had to build myself to the point of being able to go and, and make some own acquisitions ourselves like you. But I think there's more benefit in, um, you know, you have to be the operator that's done it, the operator in the business. I think having done it yourself really sets you up a, a lot of different ways. Um, and you're one of the first, first uh, M&A teams I've talked to where I'm actually talking to one of the founders. Um, I talked to a lot of the sales guys. I talked to a lot of, you know, um, but there's this part of it that's like you're not even asking me the right questions about my business or my team or my agency or what we're working on to even know what my company is worth um you know talk to me about you know kind of some of those plays like i, I would love to spend the last half of this just talking about like you know what a good business looks like a good e-commerce business looks like um to find a good a good sell or a good transition cool um 
Yeah, so I say good is is very subjective because I think when you're building a business, you're right. there's so much information out there. Like good can be, and I was talking to someone about this earlier, so it on like top of mind. Good can be a business that's good for you, like a good business to run. Like it is profitable. You work 10 hours a week and you can go on vacation whenever you want. Good to someone else is a business that makes as much money as possible for the owner works 80 hours a week. So I always say to people when you're talking about building a business or thinking about what good is, is establish like what personally is your goal. Are you trying to build and and what and when it comes to thinking about selling, what valuation would you like to achieve? If you're trying to build a hundred million dollar business, um, but your peer is trying to build a five million dollar business and you ask me that question, like what is a good business? What's a good business in the context of trying to build a hundred million dollar business? Is completely different to good in the context of trying to build a five million dollar business. So if you don't know okay. what you're trying to, I'm, I'm going yeah. to get more specific with you because you're exactly right, and that sounds like something I would say 100 percent. If someone was asking me about strategy uh, on Amazon, I would say, well, what are our goals? What are we trying to do? Are we trying to hit top line sales? Are we trying to be profitable? Are we trying to retire your mom? Are we, you know, like, are we taking care of other people when you exit? Is it just you? There's so many things that go into that. Um, before I do, I have to hit today's episode sponsor. It's Equip Bid Auctions, an online marketplace dedicated to growing small auction businesses. They're solving problems and providing a fun re-commerce or liquidation shopping experience to value bidders. Go check out their incredible offerings and sign up at equip-bid.me backslash startup. Okay, back to you, Thomas. I'm going to get more specific because you're exactly right. Um, I want to I want to tailor this for my audience specifically that I talk to regularly because I can and I'm gonna you know advocate for them. Um, you know we're talking about a business that's uh, let's say it's seven hundred and fifty thousand on Amazon, uh, maybe a hundred thousand on their D to C or or let's say it's five five. Let's say they're doing a million in sales. They're five hundred on Amazon, five hundred on their website. That'd be kind of healthy if they were diversified like that. Um, is a business doing a million dollars sellable? Do they need to be at a certain revenue number? Can you sell at any revenue number? Like what should they be thinking about as far as like, I want to get my business ready. I'm not ready right now. I want to work. I want to work on these things to prepare my business for exit. Um, And to me, these are not, these are businesses that are kind of ready to exit even at a million, not trying to get a hundred million, not trying to get 50 million, they're saying, do I need to be at $5 million to sell? Do I need to be at $2 million to sell? What gets me to that point where someone's like, yeah, I'll, I would take your business? So generally speaking, I'd say almost any business, assuming it makes money, is sellable. Okay. As whether or not it's sellable for a good amount of money or a good valuation is a separate question. But almost anything is sellable. Um, okay. If we are more specific, I'd say generally once you get to a, a million, so the number you're talking, a million in sales, it starts to get into the interesting category where there's a slightly wider pool of buyers at that level. And this is generalizing because there's lots of questions around margins, costs, all of that kind of stuff. At that level, you're probably beginning to be worth about a million dollars valuation. So I'm very simple, assuming you make 25% net margins on your million, you make about 250K a year and a four times multiple. Again, oversimplified, could be higher, could yeah. be lower. You're worth about a million. At that level, there's a reasonable number of buyers, and there's quite a lot of buyers in that one to twenty million valuation range. So anywhere from one to five million sales is generally quite an interesting level. Lots of buyer demand, and then beyond that, there's also 
a sort of never-ending demand. Any level you can get your business to revenue-wise, there's buyer demand out there. There's not a like level where demand starts to fall off. But a good rule of thumb is once you get to a million dollars, your business is sellable. Once you get to five million, you start to become more interesting to a wider range of buyers. Um, and multiples start to go up as the buyer pool widens. At that level, you're more likely to be interesting to strategic buyers um, who might sometimes pay more or private equity firms who might pay more. There are very few, particularly today, maybe in the aggregator days from a couple of years ago, there were some aggregators doing million dollar deals, but there are very few private equity firms buying businesses for a million dollars. And there are very few strategic firms doing deals for a million dollars as well. You probably need to be in that 5 million plus value range, which probably means you're doing about 5 million revenue. Again, making lots of assumptions around your margins, but I've, of looked, course. I've looked at a lot of businesses, usually around that 5 million revenue level, you start to hit around that 5 million valuation level. Um, although I, I should be clear, just in case anyone misunderstands, that does not mean e-commerce businesses are worth a multiple of your revenue. I'm making some mathematical assumptions on the, the back end. Um, yeah, so I say a million dollars is a good number. Once you get to that level, your business is sellable. Below that, you're also sellable. So at 800,000, yes, it's it's close enough. At, it's just not as exciting. Yeah, there's a much smaller pool of less sophisticated buyers. At 200,000 revenue, probably not sellable unless you, you get lucky. Um, you just you know don't, a friend or something or something. Yeah, you just don't have it. enough traction at that scale. And over the years as well, I'd say that Amazon has continuously, for most businesses, squeezed margins. So a business doing a million a year today on Amazon is worth less than a business doing a million a year five years ago because your net margins and gross margins are probably not much worse, but definitely worse than they were back then. You, you have to. You, yeah. I'm not a seller on Amazon, but you pretty much have to pay for traffic on Amazon these days. That's unavoidable. General like platform selling fees have gone up, hidden fees, fulfillment fees, all of those kind of things have gone up for everyone. Uh, there's no real way around that. But I'd say that the level you're talking starts to get interesting from from my perspective. That doesn't mean there's no way to sell your business below that level, but you can start to plan exit, all that kind of stuff once you hit a million like a true expert there's there's no black and white there's a lot of gray and it's you know 100 options to sunday um you know when people start asking consulting questions like that and that's what marknology does i'm not i'm not here to pitch us either um but it's really how i've set up my agency and and why i got excited as things get harder because amazon still has the same amount of customers growing every year i mean it's growing 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 so it's it's how do you get more volume to offset those margins. How do you continue to get margins? Everything gets trickier. You got to care about supply chain more. You got to care about bundling. And, and you know, it's not just listing product anymore. You got to be very strategic and intentional in the way that you're doing your e-commerce uh, from your D to C to, to your Amazon. Um, you know, it can't just be, it used to be like you could almost be Amazon agnostic. Um, and that was okay because PPC was doable and things like that. Now, even if you're an Amazon business, a lot of them are looking to TikTok and Facebook and Instagram some of these other channels for advertising to kind of, you know, keep their growth strategies and stuff going, um, which has just made it fun. I absolutely love the space. I'm not in it for money. So for me, the professional curiosity continues to, you know, as it gets harder, it gets, it gets more fun. Um, 
let's talk about, okay, so we're thinking in the world of e-commerce. We're thinking about a business that's around a million. Um, you know, they, they've got their numbers. Let's say their books are in order. Um, you know, what are some of the ways that like the other things you can do to prepare your business to sell? We've talked about what maybe size they need to be at or what like, you know, gross margins they're getting. But what are some of the other things that like a good buyer is going to see this in a selling business and be like, wow, they've got this covered. They've got this covered. They've got this covered. Um, this looks like an attractive offer to me. Yeah. So firstly, at least the art of good M&A is reaching a broad range of buyers. So there should almost never be a list of things you absolutely must have to make your business sellable because okay. what one buyer loves, another buyer will not. But you mentioned the first one, the most important one, which is books in order. And I would say part of the reason why the smaller the business is, the harder it is to sell is often the financials are the most messy for smaller businesses. So I would love it if every million dollar business came to us with perfect books. The reality is I wouldn't quite say it's 0%, but it's closer to 0% than 100% that have books that are not in order. So books in order is a prerequisite for selling any business. If your numbers are not accurate, then no buyer is going to pay you any sort of reasonable multiple because they are guessing and no sophisticated buyers guess when it comes to acquisitions particularly yep. if you're dealing with someone, a strategic buyer with like, if they're a public company or whatever, they're never going to give you a dollar unless your numbers are believable. Exactly same with private equity. They're not either. An individual like you or I, maybe, yes, we would take a punt, but we would be making a massive kind of reduction on what we'd be willing to pay because we're kind of using our expert, an expert guess, I, I would call it. Um, so numbers have to be in order. Um, in almost all businesses, this kind of goes without saying, but you need to have the ability to actually sell your business and the products you're selling. So for example, we saw a, a business recently, which on paper was great, bookwise was great, but they didn't actually own the right. They, they had a the product. They had a license to sell the product, but they didn't actually own the manufacturing relationship, the designs or the name. And while they had known the licensor for years, that doesn't necessarily help with a buyer who might be like, well, um, how do we know that relationship is going to continue? So that kind of goes without saying you need to have the actual rights to sell your business and then transfer that to someone else. Um, lots of businesses around the level you're talking around that million dollar revenue level have a founder who is probably very involved in the business and they're probably either self-fulfilling. So maybe they have a, a warehouse or a garage or a small office where they're or maybe doing packing and shipping themselves, maybe have a couple of people helping out, but it's unlikely they are completely out of the business at that level with a team. Once you get to say 10 million, 20 million, 50 million revenue, you can start to build a management team. You might have a warehouse or a 3PL or whatever. You might not be involved in logistics at all, but at that million dollar level, you almost definitely are almost all sellers we work with are somewhat involved, even if they're not physically in a warehouse working with the 3pl so that's unavoidable that's just the nature of selling businesses at that level so having your processes well documented having everything you do well documented things like your supply chain uh, sops all, all of that kind of stuff like knowing your lead time from suppliers having backup suppliers having a, a good process for creating new products and new SKUs. if that's something that's an important part of your business because at that level 
a buyer is essentially buying your job as part of like yeah. the business. So making that as easy as possible for someone to take over is a good thing. What I don't think you need to do, and if you asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have given you a more textbook answer. The more textbook answer is you should try and replace yourself and reduce your hours down to zero. The reality I found over 12 years working with business owners is if you tell them to do that, they won't or they can't. So it's kind of pointless advice to give. Theoretically, the less time you spend on your business, the more it is worth or the easier it is to sell. The reality is if you have a business making $200,000 a year in profit and you're paying yourself $100,000, you're probably not going to take that $100,000 you pay yourself to pay a manager and then only make $100,000 yourself. It, on theoretical textbook paper, yes, it makes sense because your business is more sellable, but the reality is no one actually does that. Um, yep. So if you can reduce your time, great. The reality is you should just make it simple for someone to take over. As your business grows, things will change. So if we're talking about a $10 million revenue business, I would definitely advise you not to be the one in the warehouse every day, kind of packing shipping orders yourself. Um, or you're not, it definitely starts to get challenged around that level because you probably have, for me, I don't know, we were talking about this just before we started recording. For me, um, the hardest point of my business was just before we hit eight figures in revenue and we were at about 20 people, I think 20 people. And that's probably where you're going to be with a $10 million a year e-commerce business. That's the hard level where you're probably doing a little bit of everything. You're probably managing 19 people directly as you grow you then start to build a management team you have um hopefully less direct reports and things can not entirely run without you but some things can run um without you so that's how things change once you get to 10 but at a million revenue it's unavoidable you're going to be in the day-to-day so i'm not going to tell people to get themselves out but at least document it um Beyond that, there's not really anything that I say is an absolute prerequisite. I could give you a bunch of metrics, which some buyers will care about, like reorder rate, average order value, uh, return on ad spend, metrics like that. Some buyers will say to you, oh, you have to have a return on ad spend of one to four or your business is unsellable. The reality is buyers just won't care. Some some will, but someone will give you a ratio of one to five. Someone will say one to 10, one to two. There's, again, everyone has an opinion everyone has an opinion uh everyone has you, an opinion. Start to learn. So i would yeah. say always beware of any buyer buyers are very good at doing this to your point around the sales guys who are sales women who are um kind of doing m&a or buying businesses there's lots of people who are very convincing if they're trying to buy your business that the metrics they are looking at are what everyone will be looking at so oh everyone cares about return on ad spend everyone cares about uh, like how many SKUs you have on Amazon. Everyone cares about what apps you're using on Shopify. Everyone cares you have your own, like you're selling on Walmart as well. The reality is it doesn't really matter. Some people will see it as an opportunity if you do not have your own store, but like you don't have a Shopify store. Some people are like, well, that's great because I can buy this business and launch one. Other buyers who might also be credible might say, I don't want to launch a Shopify store. I'm not buying this business if you don't have it. So Exactly. You, you could survey a hundred buyers. Fifty will say deal killer. Fifty will say this is an opportunity. So one thing I've learned with M and A is reach as many buyers as possible. Then you could ignore all of the people who say this is an essential criteria. But it is an essential criteria that your books are in order, and it is an essential criteria 
that your role, if you want to get out of the business and sell it, can be replaced. And you have the physical, legal, and otherwise rights to sell the products you're selling and transfer that business to someone else. That, that was that, great. That I was could great give summary. You, yeah, I could give you a list of 500 like nice-to-haves, but they're not, not essential. And if anyone tells you they are, then they're lying. I love that answer, Thomas. I think we got to make that into a clip uh, because that's just – it's a beautiful answer. Um, and you're right. Like, you know, we talked about black and white. No, it's in the gray. And, um, you know, same thing for me. I, as an agency, where I have a fulfillment center and a warehouse, I have a branding and content team that can do full service from packaging to, um, you know, A plus and, and PDP images on Amazon, the full stack, you know, to a PPC team to the, I'm going to look at a, at a project or a brand that's lacking some of those things and see it as an opportunity. Oh, I can bring the brand story to life here. We can launch a D2C site. They have no social media presence or they're not doing Amazon well. This is the opportunity here. They're doing D2C well. I'm looking at those those things missing and seeing opportunity. Oh, we could launch internationally. Um, you know, that hasn't been touched. Um, you know, their AOV could be way up. They're not doing a great job of cross-selling. See all these things as opportunities, whereas someone else might be looking for something more turnkey where everything is running smoothly and you know they're gonna their main plug is sourcing in china and they're going to reduce cost of goods and they just want everything else already running you know amazingly so you're absolutely right um marknology usually steps in when it's like um you know a lot of times it's that business trying to get to that next that next mark of, of sales or it's that smaller business that's trying to hit that first mark um, and it's like, look, I went to a seller, I went to an aggregator, I went in there saying, we, you know, we would love for you to have these things in place before you sell and, you know, then come to us and we help them accomplish that. Uh, whether that's, you know, a lot of it, a lot of times that's brand story in, uh, in the Amazon world. If it's a D2C site, if someone's doing well on a D2C site, they typically have brand story, like pretty, pretty locked in. And it's just a matter of not having Amazon knowledge. If it's an Amazon seller, a lot of times they have ops down, they have their data, they have their like SOPs and process in place, um, but they don't understand branding and storytelling. And, and people like to buy, you know, a package brand, a package like, uh, you know, what are we buying? What's your story? What's your value differentiation? You know, how are you guys different than the market? Um, and so, you know, bringing those things. And it was curious for me just to, just to hear you speak around that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, as a B2B business, I have different things to do than I have as a B2C business. And I've seen, you know, so many different buyers, um, in the space. Let's talk about, um, just as we wrap up, we're coming up on, on our time, um, talk about FE International and what is something you guys are working on as a team? I know you have a diverse team. Uh, you're in at least four or five locations. You guys have been doing this 12 plus years. You've been at events, you've been, you know, you're doing all types of things. What's something that you guys are doing as a team? Maybe it's a new market. Maybe it's like your focus is coming here. You you just run with it. But as a team, something you guys are excited that you guys are moving into. So one one of the things we're working on at the moment, which I say is a secret, but if I tell you, it's no longer a secret. Um, we've always had demand for this and we've always offered it privately, but we're going to begin to offer it publicly. And actually this part of the aggregate, the rise of aggregators is actually increase the need for the service is at the moment we only really do sell side services for business owners so if you want to sell 100 percent of your business we will sell 100 percent of your business if you want to buy a business elsewhere you need to hire in almost all cases a third-party due diligence firm to do the due diligence 
one of the things our team is really good at is due diligence. We're known for doing a huge amount of upfront audit work. Hence why I say almost no one has accurate financials because I have a team mm-hmm. of accountants and they go through the numbers and they will always find discrepancies in basically any business, particularly e-commerce businesses and particularly small ones. There's always discrepancies in basically hundred percent of deals. Um, so we're going to start offering that to buyers and people searching to buy businesses. And I guess the reason that's relevant with, uh, the aggregator world is a lot of aggregators where they went wrong is they didn't do a very good job doing due diligence. They were like, yeah, we'll buy your business. And they would kind of just buy it and then realize that the business was not making what they said. And suddenly they have a business that's worth half what they paid because they missed something in due diligence. So we're going to start, you guess, using our team that and our, the processes, SOPs that we're talking about. We have those, we've built those. We're going to start offering that to buyers. So people buying a business for the first time. Or maybe, say, think small aggregator who doesn't necessarily have the resource or expertise to build that internally. And to your point, you and I have been around for 12 years. There's lots of things you learn online in 12 years that even with a billion dollars, I can't remember how much Thras uh, raised, but something like that, you, you can't necessarily buy all of the talent to figure that out, even with a billion dollars. It just takes 100%. time. There's no replacement for time. So we've just learned, I guess, a lot of tricks of the trade, a lot of things sellers do, and they hide them. And we've picked up on these common patterns. We'll do exactly the same if you're buying a business elsewhere. And this is, I guess, not supposed to be a sales pitch for FE International. But one no, of the I, really I well asked, is, I asked. Yeah, one of the things asked. we do really well on the sell side is we sell businesses which are legitimate and do not have discrepancies in financials. And while we can't guarantee that, we have an audit team that is their job. If you buy elsewhere, the vast majority of M&A firms or business brokers or investment banks, whatever they want to call themselves, don't really do any due diligence upfront, even if they say they do. So a business that says it's making a million dollars a year, in almost all cases, revenue is correct. Almost no one, I think a lot of people get confused with this. Almost no one lies about their revenue because revenue is very easy to prove or disprove. People lie about their costs and they lie about how much time they spend on things. Um, So we do a very good job of that. We're going to roll that out. um, And hopefully it will help make, to your point about the industry growing, one thing I think is important if you're a kind of an anchor firm, which I describe us in the industry, is making sure the industry stays legitimate and does not get a bad reputation, which means you have to do a good job and people have to be able to buy businesses and not get ripped off. And to your point around seller, seller friends you have or colleagues or peers who have sold their businesses, you need people who have sold their business to have the best experience possible. And yes, to your point, selling a business is always stressful. We hope to remove some of that, but I would be lying if I said every seller we work with is not stressed at the end of the process. It's unavoidable. It is emotional. It's life-changing or hopefully life-changing. Um, but walking away, knowing that you've got the best possible deal you could have got from a legitimate buyer who will do a good job with your business. Hopefully then you walk away without any kind of selling regrets. Yeah. And I think, I think a great starting point for anyone that's looking to sell their business is, is maybe it's not a buyer looking at your business that's, that's paying for the due diligence, but you as a business that's saying, Hey, in the next two, three, four years, I want to prepare myself, you know, using a service like a due diligence service to say, Hey, I want you to evaluate my business as if you were picking it apart for a buyer 
and really come back to me because it's not, I think a lot of times as an owner, it's not that I'm outright lying. It's that I don't know that this should be like this, that this should be like this and this should be like this. And, you know, I can assume a lot of other people are like that too, where, oh yeah, I didn't know to add this and to, to speak, to call it this and, you know, to move it here and to, to be in this column and yada, 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 and speak about it that way. And so a lot of times by having my CPAs look at my stuff, my bookkeepers look at my stuff, having my, having mentors look at my business, that is when, where I figured out what I should focus on. That becomes my drivers for the next couple of years as saying, okay, this is something I want to accomplish. Okay. There's a big gap here. It's like getting your house uh, appraised, right. For, yeah. you know, before you sell it, it's like, and you are entirely correct. There is a very big difference between sellers who intentionally misrepresent something, in which case we would never advise buying and we'd never represent them. And people who did not know or made a genuine mistake, part of the, I guess, art to M&A outside of science is establishing if you think someone was lying intentionally or they were lying because they didn't know or they made an error. I'd say the majority of people are usually acting in good faith. They didn't know their accountant did it wrong, their bookkeeper did it wrong. They entered it in the wrong column or they forgot to put the invoice in. Every bit, I'd be lying if I said as a business owner, I've never made an accounting error. Like everyone's done it. It's not a, you don't end up in jail for making a mistake, regardless of what people think about IRS or whatever. That's not the reality. Um, so yes, that's a big part of it. It's, are they acting in good faith? Yes. If so, buying their business is fine and representing them if you're us is also fine. But you probably just then expect some sort of renegotiation or adjustment to the deal if you discover it in due diligence. Hence why we do right. all the work up front to make sure there's not a renegotiation based on financial discrepancies. Right. And then your expectations are going to be so much more in line when you go through that process if you've done that to know, hey, you're not caught by surprise like, uh, oh, my business is worth a third less than I thought because after due diligence, you found all this. And then you're in the process of, well, I was planning on selling it. I've made that decision mentally. Now it's a third less. What do I do? And, you know, it just becomes uber stressful versus, you know, really taking the time to prepare your business for exit, I think is just super, super important instead of just like, oh my God, multiples are at an all time high. I'm going to sell and jumping into that fray without really knowing, you know, where you're going. You spent, you birthed, most of us have birthed these businesses, you know, out of our bellies. And it's like, you know, it's something, it's, it's a very stressful process to go through. Um, I as Marknology, as an agency owner, I'm super excited about that offering and what you guys are going to do. Um, I've paired that together with an M&A guy I know that does an amazing job with his business um, of like, you know, just the data analysis and tracking everything. And he's the best I've ever seen. And so every, every once in a while, I'll pair up with him as a combo team to kind of do a due diligence on a business where I'm doing all the front and back end of an Amazon so to speak, because that's my world, you know, plugging in profitability software, seeing their cost of goods, are they actually what they say they are looking at PPC? Is there, you know, is there room for growth there looking at return rates, those kinds of things that an Amazon expert would know, but there's so much on the supply chain side, looking at manufacturers invoices, like, you know, the cost of goods and shipping and auditing all of that kind of stuff to see if it's accurate. Um, and this, you know, there isn't, a, there hasn't been, in my opinion, a formal, anyone that's standing out is doing this formally for people in the best way. So I'm super excited to hear about that um, for our own partnership division. And, you know, we have a lot of brands come to us looking for these kinds of things, looking for help, looking for the finance side. And I'm always just like, I work with some of the biggest companies in the world, some of the biggest brands, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, and they have no idea 
their e-commerce, their e-com, the e-commerce side of their businesses, a lot of times are they just don't really know what's even going on. You know, are they on Vendor Central? Are they on Seller Central? Does actual leadership or ownership know the differences in those things? Um, it's just surprising what you'd see. You know, you just see the revenue numbers and you assume. But this industry is really so so new that not every accounting firm, not every bookkeeping firm, not every you know M and A professional, not every tax professional. Um, understands e-commerce and the nuance, so to speak, the nuance that goes into a million line transactions versus 10 big POs for the year. You know, it's not the same businesses to evaluate and whatnot. So um, thank you for sharing that. I know you said it's a secret and not a sales pitch, but I think it's it's a very much, it's a problem that needs to, to be solved. And I think that um, what better to do it than a firm that's been, you know, doing it a long, long time. Well, that was our thought as well. So glad to hear you like it. Yeah, it's like if I know that it's a need, like, I mean, it's a need, you know, and I know that for a fact. And so a lot of times I feel even unqualified to really tell someone, yes, you should buy this business or not buy this business because I can only evaluate so much as an expert on my side, you know, so um, kind of coming in blind for all the other part of that and, and being able to plug them into a partner would be, you know, if you're buying a business worth a million dollars, what is 10 grand, you know, uh, or, or, you know, whatever that price tag looks like to get a due diligence done and, and get real evaluation and feel great about the business that you're buying. I think it's priceless. So, um, you know, that's absolutely incredible. We'll have to follow up. We'll have to follow up maybe, you know, six months or a year from now to see how that, you know, see how that new division, that new offering is going, because um, I think it's, it's something super needed. Cool. This has been absolutely great, Thomas. Um, you are in, you're in New York. I'm in San Francisco, but often in San Francisco. Well. Okay, I don't meet as many e-commerce guys in San Francisco as I do New York or Miami. So um, always awesome talking with you. Um, it's been a pleasure getting to know you more. I've known of FE International for quite a long time, just seeing you guys in the industry as someone else has been, you know, around. And and you kind of see the the M and A guys as, you know, what do they want from me? You know, you know, kind of like you know, in some ways it's they're buying your business and you lose them as a client. In other ways, it's like you know, it's a great source of income. In other ways, it's a great ally. You know, there's all these different kinds of ways that agencies and and uh, the M and A guys have known. But I feel like we're going to be friends and colleagues for a while. So I really appreciate um, getting to know you, and I hope it's not the last time. And and shout out again to our sponsor. This episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by our friends over at Equip Bid Auctions. Join, sell, earn. It's that easy with Equip Bid Auctions. Become an affiliate and start or grow your independent business by visiting equip-bid.me backslash startup today. Even easier, head to startup.xyz. Click, click on our partners page. You'll see Equip Bid's founder, Andy, has set up everything you need to go. Make money today. Go build your business within a business. Um, I have this great idea for... Uh, a website called uh, things we find in houses for all the real estate stuff we do. We just find the craziest stuff in there. Sometimes, you know, vintage cards, pianos, record players, just like some crazy guns and walls sometimes. And um, you know, these auction sites, you know, I started the same way, just selling stuff on eBay uh, back in the day. You could, you could buy anything and everything on eBay or Craigslist. I think back in the day, and a lot of the people that have been doing this 10 years, um, we kind of have all ended up in the same spot through some of the same methods. So it, it's, it's great to meet somebody else that's been in the industry a long time. Thomas, thanks again for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me on. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you, Hustlers, for tuning in. Uh, hope we brought you guys some value today about thinking about you know your business or your future, maybe the one you're about to build or the one you've been building. 
Um, please, uh, Thomas's notes and connections will all be in the footnotes. You'll be able to contact him there, FE International. We'll see you next time, guys. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. Like we do it.